0: Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Michael Salerno, Vice President of Global Banking at First National Bank of Omaha. Mike, thanks for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to start with a question about uncertainty, which is a word we've heard quite a lot over the last year and a half or so with respect to trade policy. Federal Reserve economists just published a paper very recently in which they quantified the impact of trade policy uncertainty on investments. They found that a rise in trade policy uncertainty last year reduced U.S. investment by more than 1%, and they cited higher expected tariffs and increased uncertainty about future tariffs as deterrence to investment. Have you seen that from your vantage point in global banking?
1: Yes, I'd say we, we've seen that uh, over the last two years and in, in with tariffs uh, and just the trade agreements not being done. For example, just with uncertainty uh, with Brexit alone, it's usually a good place where our clients would like to expand into the EU. Uh, being able to go to the UK and have similar banking and legal systems is a, is a great way to, to kind of take a leap into that. And because they are part of the EU at this point, uh, that would make it easier for them to then use that as a hub to all the other countries that are in the EU. Um, with that uncertainty, we've definitely seen plans put on hold, expansion put on hold, um, and really trying to wait and see if that is going to be the route or if they want to really have one place to service all the EU, do they need to pick a place like Ireland or Germany? We've also seen expanding into to markets like Japan or China, where there aren't the agreements done, investments or strategies put on hold in order to see how things play out, in order to see... Um, if they're going to have a competitive advantage or are they going to be at a disadvantage from a price perspective. So with uncertainty, obviously, uh, companies are trying to build a strategy. It's hard for them to know what their outcomes are going to be if they don't have a, a direct path forward on some of the outstanding issues that are affected from trade and foreign policy.
0: So you mentioned Brexit, um, something I'm sure you're watching closely, as are many um the European Union and the United Kingdom have been wrestling with that situation there. And that that seems to be an indicator that it can be hard to undo economic integration mm-hmm. with the uh, UK having been integrated um, into the EU, not with the currency, but uh, otherwise integrated in other ways. Um, what are current dynamics that you're seeing like Brexit or, or elsewhere around the globe right now tell you about how hard it might be to Undo integration. We've also heard a lot about the U.S. and Chinese economies potentially decoupling. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say about that?
1: I would say those are, those are kind of two different situations. When we look at Brexit really being part of the European Union, there's a lot more integration than just supply chains. So if the uh, U.K. does leave, um, depending upon whether it's a deal or no deal, it's going to have impacts. Just moving people back and forth over borders um, the potential for having customs and duties and, and all the other stuff that goes with that. But more importantly, you have a lot of individuals that are working in the UK that aren't citizens because they're a part of the European Union. So that's really hard to, uh, to I would say, to separate because it's just not the supply chain. You're talking about people uh, that are working there supporting schools and healthcare, which is going to cause, I, th- I think, a, a tremendous amount of Of disruption, let alone not being able to transfer over borders today, for them it's almost like going from state to state. And now it's truly going to have hard borders with customs, and and that's that's adding more complexity. Um, That is, uh, you know, more than just uh, the the deals that they're trying to work with exit on. Kind of, uh, are they going to have you know customs? Are they going to have a hard border with Ireland? How do you import export? So that's gonna be a lot harder to, I would say, tear down that integration that's currently there. When we talk about China and some of the other areas and decoupling with that, there is a ton of integration. There are uh, US companies that are importing from China, creating products, and then exporting back. So those supply chains are, are completely uh, intermixed. And in order to, to separate, we're talking about really looking at a, a new supply chain. How are we finding new buyers and suppliers? And it's tough because our our clients that we've seen have spent a lot of time, money, and investment building those relationships in China. And for them to go out and find someone to be a new buyer or a supplier is going to take time, money, investment, and more importantly, trust. You've got to rebuild those relationships. Find a partner that you can trust and have a long-term relationship. And what's at risk here is that as we start to see this uh Trade war continue to to go on. We are seeing more interest from our clients of saying, "I am buying this product from China. It's getting more expensive. I don't see anything in end. I have competitors that are not, and my products are more expensive. I can't compete unless I find a new supplier. Help me find a supplier somewhere other than China, whether that's India or Vietnam. And if we start." moving further down that road and they're building those relationships and tariffs go away, there's no motivation to bring those back. And that's, I think, what's really at risk. And that's what the concern is with the uncertainty is we spent a lot of time, money, and uh, and built this trust. And now we're going to end these relationships to go somewhere else. And it's never going to come back.
0: So on that note, and shifting just a little bit into the agriculture sector here, we know that trade tensions between the United States and China have have been high um, of late, Both countries have imposed new rounds of tariffs on each other's products, with the most recent round having taken effect on September 1st. This has certainly impacted agriculture. As you know, China was the number one destination for U.S. soybeans. That fell off um, dramatically late last year, and China has sought soybeans from other markets. You wrote in a blog post in June, and I'd like to just quote from that for a moment. You wrote, quote, the fact that China has shifted to other countries for imports during the U.S. trade negotiations only underscores the fact that opportunities emerge even as existing relationships shut down. So I'd like to follow up on that. Where do you see those other opportunities emerging and what does it take to act on them?
1: Sure. So with China, you know, looking more to South America, Brazil and Argentina for for their supply, that's left U.S. companies that are exporting trying to find a place uh, that needs their demand. And where we've seen that uh, particular um, I would say growth is in Southeast Asia. So other other areas outside of China, um, we've seen a dramatic amount of growth uh, with, I would say, our commodities going to Vietnam, going to Thailand, Bangladesh, um, trying to find uh, customers there, I think has been easier. There's uh, there's definitely the demand, there's a growing middle class, but the problem is it's not as a mature market as China. So our clients have have built those relationships over decades. Most of them know their clients. They've got uh, payment terms in place, whether it is going to be uh, open account with maybe insuring their receivables, maybe some still done on letters of credit. But when we're going over to Vietnam, for instance, our clients are finding their demands there, but trying to get the deal done is a little bit more difficult. There's enhanced risk just from uh, the capital structure of the banks that they're dealing with then maybe the end customer can't pay up front or can't obtain the credit to get a letter of credit issued by the bank. So we're looking at more advanced topics on how do we actually get the deal done? Are we doing a letter of credit and giving them terms, but our client doesn't want to take on that risk? So they're talking about, well, how about we do a confirmation? We don't want to take the risk in Vietnam. It's a new customer, but we know there's a different political environment over there. We'll, we'll pay the confirmation fee and we want to give our customers 180 days to pay, but we want to get paid right away. So can you discount that for us? So when we ship, we know that we're looking to a U.S. bank for for the risk and we're getting paid right away. And we'll just find a way for the Vietnamese customer to uh, to pass those fees on to them so that they can get the financing um, through us, which is probably not available maybe to them in country. So finding customers I think happens a quite quickly and quite often, but a lot of the deals that we are getting involved in aren't getting done as fast, and it's really trying to negotiate those payment terms. Who's gonna do the financing? How, how are we going to get paid, knowing that they might be a broker, they need time to sell that, um, they're having trouble getting financing, really evaluating the whole spectrum of payment terms rather than with China, it's, yep, they'll send us a letter of credit or we'll get a cash in advance. So different dynamic.
0: So how do you weigh um, or sort those various dynamics? So with China, firms face a a tariff disadvantage now with retaliatory tariffs. Mm. Although because of the long-established sort of nature of those relationships, the deals can get done a little faster versus the growing but less mature markets that you mentioned in Southeast Asia where there may not be the tariff disadvantages, but the deals can't get done quite as fast. Mm. How do you weigh and sort um, the cost benefit in that situation. It's
1: really just looking at the risk. So if they're going to go to Singapore, obviously great credit rating, there's great banks there. Um, If the customer that's going to buy has a good credit relationship, we can do a letter of credit and everyone feels comfortable. It's just a little bit more cost um, either to the buyer, the supplier, or maybe they split it. But when we go to to Bangladesh, Thailand, or Taiwan, there's a a different risk dynamic. And that's when we're really looking at do they, can they get cash in advance? Um, if they get a letter of credit, what does the bank look like? Um, is there credit risk there that they're unwilling to take? Is there anything going on in the country that they're not willing to take the country risk? So we're really evaluating the country, the bank, and the buyer and trying to evaluate the level of risk the customer is willing to take and making sure we're putting in the right products to mitigate that risk uh, or match up with their risk appetite.
0: I'd like to get a banking perspective on free trade agreement negotiations from you as well. So as you know, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is pending Mm -hmm. congressional approval, at least of this recording. Um, There are talks between the U.S. and Japan. Potentially there will be talks between the U.S. and the U.K. when Brexit is complete. Um, Other uh, countries are potentially going to be um, talking with the U.S. as well um, about potential free trade negotiations. So I wonder, what does a banker like you look for in the content of such negotiations as they're, as they're ongoing or perhaps um, as in USMCA already concluded?
1: So we, with USMCA, uh, what we're really looking for there is what is the, the, the differences from NAFTA compared to the new agreement? And is there anything material that's going to create an advantage for our clients or a disadvantage? Um, most of our clients are, are probably more ag-based. So we really, we look at that and make sure that they're going to be on a level playing field with uh, any of the other countries they're competing with. If we know that um, it's not, then there's going to be some uncertainty and and maybe that's going to direct some effort toward another country. Um, And and that's what we're seeing with Japan. So we know that the, the trade agreement isn't done with Japan and there is European agreement. There's an Australian agreement and we could potentially be at a A pretty sizable disadvantage for beef and pork. And those are huge markets for our customers here in Nebraska. So the focus for us is that we really want that agreement to be uh, completed and put us on a level playing field so then we can compete. And it's really then it's our brand and and it's our quality, which we think we can compete very easily on. Uh, But if we do have a large price disadvantage, then not. So we're really looking at those and trying to evaluate is that going to uh, cre- create any issues, positive or negative, for our clients? And, and if it is, evaluate that. Um, we think USMCA should get done. We hope it does get done. Um, the big thing from there is really IP and some of the other stuff that's that that that's been in there, that's been in the news. I think uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get flushed out and we can get that in place Um if it doesn't, and it continues to go on, that again, creates more anxiety and uncertainty and could delay investment, um, or just expansion of our products being exported to those markets. Um, in relation to the EU, uh, we're hoping, you know, that, uh, those talks continue to go. And I think we've made some movement, uh, in relation to, to some of the, the main concerns. And I think most, uh, Nebraskans are probably concerned about the the agricultural products and making sure that we can uh, be on a level playing field and be able to export more freely into the EU. Uh, We're really watching that to make sure there's some moves that will allow us to to really open up in that market. Um, And then knowing that if there is a no deal Brexit, uh, the the administration can move quickly on a trade agreement there. Uh, If if there is a deal, we're probably not going to have the ability to have a direct agreement with the UK right away. But if, uh, for, you know, depending upon what happens day to day, if there is a no deal with the UK, we want to make sure we move fairly quickly. Um, and we think that could present some, some really good opportunities for our exports to the US.
0: Let's talk for just a moment about trade and services. I think this is sometimes an undertold story. Service industries account for over 75% of US GDP, and the US consistently runs a surplus mm-hmm. in trade and services. And in Nebraska alone, services exports doubled between 2006 and 2016 from $1.1 billion to $2.2 billion, according to the Coalition of Services Industries. So they're important and they're growing as a component of trade. Tariffs are not applied to services, mm. although non-tariff barriers could be. You said before that 20% of your work deals with services. Mm. Is that growing? And how might changes in trade policy that have occurred over the last year impact the flow of trade and services?
1: It is growing. We we definitely have our, uh, a base of, of agriculture and manufacturers and your typical exporters. But what we're really starting to see is some of those companies that are providing services, whether it's going to be accounting or software consulting or relocation, their customers are, are global and they're taking them global. So they are starting to provide those same services here in the U.S., following their clients globally into Europe, into Asia, and we're seeing that they're getting more comfortable with that. So we're starting to see more companies that were purely domestic on the services side, reach into Canada, reach into Europe, things that are very easy and, and are really being pulled by their customers. So we think that's going to be an important part and it's going to continue to grow. When we talk about trade policy, what really comes uh, into mind with those is when we're talking about IP uh, and just some of the other, uh, I would say aspects that would affect entities or services in there. So if we talk about how they're taxed, um, what their corporate structure is, and, and the different services that they might be able to offer is, is very important. Not to mention that if uh, they have to actually have a physical presence to offer their services, and do they have to have, have an entity with uh, you know, bonding and, and all the other different fees. So being able to set up an entity to provide services is different from country to country, and maybe is not uh, what we would say tariffs, but those non-barrier tariffs. Some of those restrictions on foreign companies providing services uh, can prevent um, our our customers or Nebraskans going into those countries and and being able to be effectively compete.
0: I'd like to ask you about a dynamic that's playing out thousands of miles away in Geneva, at the World Trade Organization. This can seem perhaps far away and arcane in our day-to-day lives, but it, it is a coming dynamic, and that has to do with the appellate body at the World Trade Organization, which is essentially the last resort for member countries to take their trade disputes to be to be settled through WTO rules. Um, the U.S. has been blocking the appointment of new judges to the appellate body because of concerns over the way that body operates to the point where, due to term limits, there will be only one judge left by December of this year, and at which point the appellate body can't function. Is this a dynamic that you're watching at all, and what might be the implications for trade from a banking perspective if if that option for settling trade disputes can no longer function?
1: I don't know that we're watching too closely, but we are uh, very aware. We work with uh, world trade organizations throughout the U.S. and, and, and some overseas, and they've been a great resource for just issues related to, you know, trying to find new customers or trying to find buyers and all the other things that go along with education um, to, to help our, our clients. But I would say with the appellate body, it's, um, I think there is a, a lot of concern from the community. Uh, as you know, and we've talked about, there's a lot of uncertainty around trade, there's tariffs, there's non-barrier tariffs, there's all these things that are going on uh, a- across the globe. And the one place that people or these countries or these companies could go to would be the WTO and try to get some type of resolution. Without this there, it's allowing a lot of these things to go, um, I would say, continue. And there's no real governing body or or mediator to address this, which is causing more of these non-barrier tariffs to come up and, and different issues that are happening at ports and, and other ways to kind of combat or retaliate against some of the tariffs. Um, if we don't get this in place, uh, it's just, there's not going to be a venue for that. And we know that the EU has been very, very strong on trying to find a creative or alternative solution to put this, uh, body back in place, uh, knowing that the US so far has been pretty stringent on not removing their their veto or continuing to block judges. So I would say that as we get closer to December, if we do get down to one judge, there will probably be um, more ideas or more solutions that will be put forth to the membership to try to find an alternative path to kind of have a a venue to hear these and and more importantly try to enforce uh, some of the issues that the countries are experiencing.
0: What other trends in foreign policy or trade or international relations writ large are you watching that are important to, to what the work that you do and to your clients?
1: Uh, I would say the two most important things that we're focused on today really is the the free trade agreements, just trying to understand the volatil- volatility, the uncertainty, and everything that's going on. Because that directly impacts flows for imports and exports. It's going to have economic impact to all the countries, whether it's their GDP growth, if it's going to affect their currency, all that creates uh, new risk dynamics, which is allowing us to, to really kind of stay on our toes and trying and to redo our strategies and constant conversations about risk and how do we have plan A, B, C, and sometimes D to mitigate these risks. Um, the second thing that we're really watching is, is technology. So every country is... Uh, is having some type of disruption, whether it's with trade or it's payments. And things are moving a lot faster. Um, and with that, we're also having issues around fraud. Uh, it's harder to fight fraud if payments are going faster and, and having instant payment systems that are all being developed by different countries. It's hard to try to tap into those globally. So with all the different clients around Swiss GPI, trying to have faster and more transparent payments, uh, different companies using blockchain, um, other, I would say, fintechs or uh, companies trying to come in and create this interoperability between the different faster payment systems really could change the dynamic, I would say, with trade. I think we're going to see in the next five years that payments are going to be more faster, they're going to be less expensive, and all your fees and foreign exchange are going to be transparent. We're also hoping on the trade side that with disruption, we'll see um, not as uh, a paper-focused industry and that we'll be able to move much more fast um, and take our transactions from days down to, to hopefully hours.
0: Let's talk for a moment also about foreign direct investment. Um, how has or have the changes in trade policy, for example, the U.S. pullout of the Trans-Pacific Partnership impacted FDI flows that you can see?
1: I'd say a great example of that is just Japan. We, uh, we know that they're a huge importer of, of beef and pork. And uh, they've, they've had some very large companies that uh, know that the U.S. has uh, great products and they enjoy the quality and they have uh, invested heavily into companies here in the United States uh, as uh, just a way to integrate their supply chains. And when we did not uh, join TPP, you know, obviously uh, the countries that did and then their agreement with the E.U., uh, they know that it's going to be cheaper to import pork and Euro, uh, sorry, pork and beef from Europe and Australia. And we've seen those same countries that have had investment and then continue to invest in the United States start making those investments in Australia and Europe. And knowing that if they're going to need to uh, continually meet the demand of their population of beef and pork, and it's going to be a significantly cheaper to source that from those countries, they want to be able to make an investment to uh, make sure that the pork and beef are coming into their country meets their standards and their quality. And um, they're b- building you know, huge plants and, and JVs uh, uh, that normally we would have expected to, to happen here in the US.
0: Thank you. Last question today sure. is the same for every guest. And that is, what have you read lately about trade, a book or article that is most striking to you?
1: Well, I, I would say the the two things that I read every day is uh, trends and trade not on, on the Bloomberg uh, feed. And then I also like to read the Economist Expresso app. I don't say there's any one thing that's been really striking to me, but I think what is striking is getting those updates is just, so how, just how vastly everything is changing so quickly. So there is not just one area of focus or one country. It's every day there's five or six things. That are making a dramatic impact in trade or in the global economy and trying to trying to put all those together is becoming more complex so we talked about soybeans going into china but with the the flu there they lost a lot of their herds, so their demand of soybeans have gone down talking about how that's intermingled you know there might be another update then about we didn't grow that many soybeans because of floods and, and then we did because they couldn't plant their corn so it's just keeping track every morning from different sources and trying to hear their viewpoint or their take on it is pretty intriguing.
0: So what's your strategy to keep up with all the, this increased pace of change?
1: Uh, I just try to find those are, I think those are probably my two favorite sources, uh, just because they have, uh, you know, they're kind of an aggregator of all the different, uh, I would say, publications and articles out there and they can link them back to everywhere else. And what I what I really like to do is, um, if it's something that affects the U.S., is try to hear their take on it, but then find uh, a similar publication from the country in there and get their take on it, just to try to sort through what's really happening, what's important, and, and how we can try to mitigate those risks.
0: Michael Salerno, thanks for giving us a banker's perspective on trade today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. A big thank you to Bryce Duskett, Haley Apel, and Brianne Wolfe for helping produce this podcast. Join us next time for a conversation with Chuck Hagel, former U.S. Secretary of Defense and former U.S. Senator from Nebraska. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you send us an email at yeuterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yider. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.